looking together tonight at, at the book of Micah. The book of Micah. It's been a few weeks since we've looked at a, a book of the Bible together. But we're going to be looking at Micah and reading specifically from the last three verses of Micah. Micah 7, 18 through 20. So if you want to turn there, we'll be going through the book kind of and highlighting various scripture passages. But Micah 7, 18 through 20 will be our, uh, our text tonight. Hear the word of the Lord read for you this evening. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in the days long ago. This is God's word. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bless us as we study it together. Lord God, we once again are grateful for the freedom we have to gather tonight and to hear uh, from you uh, through your word. Lord, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we look together at the book of Micah. Lord, enable us to hear what it is you have to say to us and respond accordingly. For Jesus' sake, amen. Who is a God like you? That is the question the book of Micah leaves us asking. Who is a God like you? A God who at one and the same time cannot and will not leave the guilty unpunished. But who nevertheless longs to bless and restore and forgive his people simply because they are his. Who is a God like you? The prophet Micah ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That would mean he ministered for at least 20 years, sometime between 740 and 690 B.C. This was a very eventful time in Israel's history. As during it, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, remember the kingdom is divided, we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom of Israel during this time fell to the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened and even attacked by the Assyrians. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah would not fall for some hundred or more years yet, but nevertheless, it was, it was an eventful time in the life of Israel. And the prophet Micah's job was, was really twofold. In the first place, God called Micah to declare to the people why his judgment against them was just. That is, he, he wanted his people to know that he had raised up the Assyrians against them now, and he would raise up the Babylonians against them later to punish them for their sin. When they were being threatened by the Assyrians, the people of Israel might have asked the same thing we ask when bad things happen. Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? Well, God sent the prophet Micah to tell them why this was happening. 
and to tell them what they did to deserve this. You can see some of this in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Okay, Micah's job is to make it clear that God's judgment is just. It's to present God's case against his people for their sin. And you'll hear scathing judgments against the people of Israel and Judah, uh, just like the one I read throughout the book. Here he, he calls them out for their idolatry and immorality in that passage we just read. Later on, he'll call them out for their social injustice. In chapter 2, he calls out greed land barons who defraud men of their homes and God-given property in the promised land. In chapter 3, he calls out government officials who use their power to enrich themselves. Later on in chapter 3, he goes to call out corrupt prophets who are preaching health and wealth to uh, all who will give them money. Right? Give me money and I'll pronounce a blessing upon you. Very Kenneth Copeland or Joel Osteen-like thing to do. There's nothing new under the sun. In chapter 6, he calls out dishonest businessmen who use tricks to line their pockets, right? But this is, this is Micah's job. It's to call Israel and Judah to account for their sin and to make it clear that God's judgment against them, handed down through the Assyrians, it is a just judgment. What's happening to them is the consequences of their sin. They've broken covenant with the Lord, and now the covenant curses are coming upon them. In the second place, though, what Micah's job is to make it clear that, that even though God's judgment against his people is just, he isn't done with them yet. Even though he's handing them over to their enemies for a time, He's not forsaking them. And so, even though he, he repeatedly speaks a stern word of judgment against Israel and Judah because of her sin, Michael also speaks about a time of mercy, and a time of restoration, and a time of deliverance that will come beyond this season of judgment. You see this in that passage I opened with, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely... Gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And actually, 
Micah's prophecy, it alternates between words of judgment and words of mercy. Right? Chapters 1 through chapter 2, 11, you see words of judgment. Chapter 2, 12, and 13, we just read those verses, words of mercy. Chapter 3, word of judgment. Chapters 4 and 5, words of mercy and hope and promise. Chapter 6, word of judgment. Chapter 7, again, a word of mercy. So that was, that was Micah's job. He was, he was called by God to declare why God's judgment against his people was just. He was called to expose their sin. But he was also called to proclaim these words of mercy and hope. He was also called to proclaim that although their sin was real and their sin was great and their sin was serious and their sin was grave, God would not in the end treat them as their sins deserve. No, he would commute their sentence and he would forgive their sins and he would preserve a remnant and he would in fact be their God in accordance with with his covenant with Abraham. Now what are some primary themes in the book of Micah? Well, one of them is, is, is simply the inevitability, big words here, the inevitability of divine reaction against sin. Okay, the inevitability of divine reaction against sin. I think it's a mouthful, but hopefully you're getting what I'm saying. We see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. See it over and over again throughout the prophets, don't we? This theme occurs in almost every prophet. Our holy and just and good God cannot overlook sin. He cannot and he will not pretend sin is not there. It does not matter if it's the unbelieving Assyrians and Babylonians or his own covenant people. He will not overlook sin. No, he will react against it in some way, shape, or form. I think we sort of live in a day where many people just think God sort of overlooks my sin. And I have sinned, God's in the business of forgiving. It's a great match, it's a great relationship. That's sort of the attitude today. But the Bible, over and over and over again, harps on this note that the divine reaction against sin is inevitable. God cannot overlook it. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here, but this truth that is just pounded on almost every page of the Old Testament, right? This truth ultimately points to the cross. Because on the cross, what we're seeing is the consistent divine reaction against sin that we see throughout the Old Testament. At the cross, what we're seeing is that it is true that God cannot and will not ignore sin. Of course, the wonder of the cross, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, getting into the Christ-focused portion before I'm there. The wonder of the cross, of course, is that God, God, God reacts against our sin in the person of his son, right? He pours out his wrath, not on, not on those who deserve it, but on the one who doesn't deserve it, his own beloved son. And, and of course, the Belgian Confession reminds us that it's because God did this, it's because God poured out his wrath upon his son, that he pours out his goodness and mercy on sinners like us. And that does lead to the second theme in the book of Micah. It's simply that God, not just that God shows mercy, I think we really have kids, it's that God, God delights to show mercy. God loves mercy. 
That's evident as you, as you read this book over and over through the prophet Micah. God brings his charges and his accusations against his people. Idolatry, prostitution, extortion, greed, abuse of power, corruption. These people are wicked. God has every right to cast them off forever. But over and over and over after each accusation, he sounds this note of mercy. He says, I will gather you, O Jacob. And you want to say, why? In that day I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I brought to grief. In another place, the former dominion will be restored to you. In another place, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies. Over and over, he keeps sounding this note of mercy. And, and as you read the book, you just can't help it. The Lord, the Lord actually, he, he delights to show mercy. He takes pleasure in showing mercy. Of course, that's expressly stated in Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And this is your God. Your God delights to show mercy. I think we could go so far as to say that God, God delights to show mercy even more than you delight to receive His mercy. Isn't that something? Have you ever thought of that? The question is not whether or not the Lord will show you mercy. The question is whether you'll, you'll receive his mercy in and through Christ. That's the only question. The Lord delights to show mercy. The Lord longs to bless those who will repent of their sins and give their lives to him. How does the book of Micah point to Christ? That's the question we really wanted to answer in all of these books of the Bible that we've studied. Like we've done with several of the books we can identify both a general way and a specific way that the book of Micah points to Christ. The general way I've already sort of preached a moment ago. It's in this theme of justice and mercy or judgment and restoration. Micah's prophecy of judgment was fulfilled in part when God's people were conquered first by the Assyrians, later by the Babylonians, and exiled from the promised land. And his prophecy of restoration and mercy was fulfilled in part when the Persian king allowed them to return to their land in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But no, no, these, these prophecies of judgment and restoration, just like they do throughout the Old Testament, they, they ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. For it's, it's in Jesus, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that God's Judgment against his people's sin and his merciful restoration of his people ultimately come to pass. It's there that these, these prophecies fully and finally are fulfilled. The wonder again, though, is that his judgment is poured out on another, so that his mercy might be poured out on us. As Michael Williams says, Jesus bears our judgment so that we can experience God's mercy. Now that our time has been served, our record expunged, and our citizenship rights restored by our righteous and merciful representative, we no longer need to fear judgment. So in this theme of judgment and mercy, always, always, it's a way to find Christ in the Old Testament. But a more specific way is in Micah 5. Uh, if you'd want to turn there, if the Bibles are still open. Micah 5. Again, he's sounding that note of mercy here. 
Micah 5, beginning at verse 1, tells us about a promised ruler of Israel who will come. And this, this ruler, Micah tells us, uh, will, be, will be from Bethlehem. But his origins will be from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and with him as their ruler, God's people will dwell secure. And no peace, and his name will be known to the ends of the earth. Micah tells us all those things in those five verses. Now, that prophecy by itself is a bit cryptic, isn't it? Right? He'll be born in Bethlehem, his origins of old, right? Stand and shepherd his people, his name. What? It's a bit cryptic. Until you get to the New Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The ruler Micah is telling us about here is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born in Bethlehem. And whose origins would be of old from eternity, because it turns out this one born is actually God incarnate. He would stand and shepherd his flock. He said so himself. I lay down my life for the sheep. More than that, under his watchful care, the scriptures tell us that God's people do live securely. And in him we have peace. There's also that detail about his name being known to the ends of the earth. And today, the Lord Jesus Christ's name is known to the ends of the earth. So Micah 5, 1 through 5, it's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, Micah speaks clearly about the Messiah and about the salvation he would bring to the people of God. And this is one of the, the great defenses of the, of the truth of Scripture and the Gospel, right? One of the great apologetic go-tos if you're trying to defend the faith. Here's Micah <coughs> writing some 700 years before Jesus was born. That's not disputed. Okay. And he's writing about one born in Bethlehem whose existence preceded his being born and who will bring peace and security and whose name will be known to the ends of the earth. And then we fast forward to the New Testament and on to today and we see that these truths, these truths, they are, they are fulfilled in Christ. So prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. It's a great testament to the truth of God's word. And those who deny the truth of God's word or the gospel, they need to reckon with these sorts of things. Either the writers of the New Testament intentionally picked up on these prophecies and made the story of Jesus fit, <coughs> or the story of Jesus in fact fits. And it's all from God. Those are your two options. Those who deny the truth of the scriptures, they need to reconcile with those sorts of things. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. Finally, a contemporary application. It's, uh, it's funny that the book of Micah highlights to a supreme degree God's justice and God's mercy. Almost all the prophets emphasize God's justice and mercy. But Micah, Micah highlights it to a supreme degree. And uh, it's interesting because these were the two things that were especially lacking in Israel during the days of Micah. Micah calls Israel out for a whole host of sins, as we've seen, but he, he seems to heap special condemnation on those who withheld justice and mercy. In chapter 2, he calls out those who covet fields and seize them because they have the power to do so. You remember 
That God gave each family an allotment in the promised land. Well, well some, because they had the power to do so, they were, they were taking that land from others. They were depriving their fellow man of his inheritance. Not acting justly. In chapter 3, he calls out those leaders who, who should know justice but are not administering it. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 8. The most famous passage in the book of Micah. And the prophet says this. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the Lord wanted from his people. In that way, they, they, they shared God's own character, right? Justice and mercy are the two things highlighted here. That's what God gives to his people. That's what he asks of his people. He, he, he shows them what he requires. He wanted them to act justly. That means, you know, stop showing favorites if you're in a position of power. Stand up for the poor and the oppressed. Pay the worker his wages. Deliver fair judgment and decisions in all cases where you can choose better from worse. Whatever. We, you are to be people who act justly. And he wanted them to, to love mercy. This is my, my favorite. Think about that for a moment. He didn't just say, act justly, show mercy. He said, act justly, love mercy. Think of something you love. I love fishing. You know what I do because I love fishing? I look for opportunities to go fishing. I think a lot about fishing. And I spend a lot of money on fishing. My wife loves to go camping. I could take it or leave it, but since she loves it, I go. Unless I get an opportunity to go fishing, but anyway. <laughs> so she looks for opportunities to go camping. And she thinks a lot about camping. She spends a lot of money on camping. Think about something you love. And now think about the place it occupies in your life. And now think about what it means to, to love mercy. Mercy isn't just something God's people are to show. Mercy is something we're to love. Mercy is something we're to delight in. Mercy is something we are to be on the lookout to administer. It's something we are to keep our minds on. It's something that maybe even influences how we and what we do with our money. And so on and so forth. We are to be people who, who love mercy. We're to delight in showing it to others. We're to delight in, in being shown mercy by others. We're to delight in seeing someone be merciful to someone else. We're to, we're to love mercy even as God himself loves mercy. What I said, that note is sounded here. The Lord delights to show mercy. He longs to show mercy. And we are to be people too who don't just show it here and there, but who long to show mercy, and who delight to show mercy, and who look for opportunities to show mercy, and who celebrate showing mercy. Of course, the last thing Micah says is that we're to walk humbly with our God. What that means is that we're to live our lives in such a way that we give due, due acknowledgement to God. In every aspect of our conduct, we're to live lives that always, no matter what we're doing, acknowledge Him as our King and our Sovereign. We're to live lives 
of evident faith. And so the book of Micah reminds us of the lives that God calls his people to live. Of course, we remember in all of this that, that Christ died for us in order that we might be forgiven, yes, but also so that by his spirit we might, we might live for him. He died for us in order that by his spirit we might like him, like him, act justly, and love mercy. So keep, keep that verse before you this week. Keep it in your mind when you're at work, summertime, when you're at the beach, driving down the road, wherever you go. And he has shown you, O oh man or woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him, your God. Let's pray. Lord God, you have shown us what is good. You have shown us what is good. Help us to be people who live according to what is good. Who act justly, who love mercy, who walk humbly with you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, why don't you stand for the parting blessing? What is our, I don't have a bulletin. What song are we singing next? In the gray, 291. Okay, why don't we stand first? Next week, Sunday night, if you're not from Prosper, Dr. David Murray's going to be here. He's going to be here in the morning and night. He was here last year, Scottish guy, if you remember. I'm really excited about that from Puritan Seminary, so you're all invited back, and hopefully you'll come back and bring your friends, and that's always an enjoyable, unenjoyable service. But uh, and I forgot the number. 291. I still haven't given the blessing yet. Let's get to 291. One thing at a time. One thing at a time. Can't chew gum and walk at the same time. Okay. Now I'm going to give the blessing. Dear friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen.